Salve and salutations. My name is Charles Chestnut, a former lawyer, current historian, occasionally a long-distance hiker, and possibly one day a podcaster and a Twitch streamer. This is Storied History, and this story is about the history of Mexico. So I have been promising this one for quite some time, and I've been working on it also for quite some time. This was a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. Uh, to compress the history of a country that I was not really familiar with down into a recognizable but also coherent and entertaining form was more difficult than I had originally anticipated. But I learned quite a bit, and I was really enjoying it. I hope you do too. I was born in New Orleans. I was raised in Texas, and Mexico has always had a kind of a special place uh, in my heart. A f foreign country, certainly, but one that is steeped in romanticism. It's not just a place you go to drink or that beautiful women and good food come from. It's a land of magic and fascinating, fascinating stories. I'm only going to be able to cover a few of them, but I'll do what I can. Mexico. Before it was Mexico, it was Spanish. Before it was Spanish, it was Aztec. And before it was Aztec, it was Mayan. The Mayans came first. Now, I'm really not going to dwell on the details here because they are incredibly complicated. Uh, but basically, the Mayans were first. Their empire was a series of city-states, uh, one of the most famous being Chichen Itza. These cities had shifting alliances, small wars ranged from tens of thousands of population to the upper limit of maybe a hundred to 200,000 people. About the same population as a large modern suburb, just with more war. They fought a lot. Really a lot. There was no centralized government, so the city-states fought each other fairly constantly and consistently. The Mayan civilization existed for about 2,000 years. It flourished for about 500 and ultimately collapsed around the 9th and 10th century AD. No one is entirely sure why, but most theories contain what you might expect. There's uh, interesting warfare, environmental collapse caused by high populations, disease, and drought. Ancient Mayan cities were simply abandoned, and some just completely forgotten, only being rediscovered much later. Sometimes much, much later. One city was found uh, just recently on the Yucatan Peninsula. And when I say just recently, I mean it was just found this summer, about a month ago. June of 2023, a 123-acre city complete with buildings, a 50-foot-tall pyramid, and a ceremonial ball court slash sacrificial pit was found in the jungle of the Yucatan Peninsula. It had been covered up by the jungle, lost for more than a thousand years, and found in 2023. So a very quick side note about geography. Mexico is big. It is 750,000 square miles, just under 2 million square kilometers. So it's about 20% of the size of the United States. The terrain ranges from tropical rainforest to desert. The Baja Peninsula is the one that is south of California, on the western side of Mexico, and the Yucatan Peninsula is in the southeast of Mexico. It forms the bottom coast of the Gulf of Mexico. 
It sort of sticks out toward Cuba. The total population is about 128 million people, 20 million of which live in Mexico City. Mexico City is not a coastal city. It is about 150 miles from the coast. And before Mexico was Mexico, Mexico City was Tenochtitlan. It was founded in 1325. And before Tenochtitlan was Tenochtitlan, 40 miles away was, and sort of still is, Teotihuacan, which translates to the place where the gods dwell. Now that's the really old city. It was originally founded in 300 BC, 250 years before London, and 100 years before Paris was even a fishing village, Teotihuacan absolutely dominated central Mexico. It was the biggest, the strongest, and the most culturally relevant. But when the rest of the Mayan Empire collapsed, Teotihuacan was no exception. The city and the pyramids were abandoned, and the real power shifted 40 miles south to a lake which became the seat of Aztec power, which later became Mexico City. And I'm going to touch on the myths briefly because they are interesting. A few of theirs and one really big one of ours. No one really believes theirs anymore, but way, way too many people believe the one that still gets repeated today. So in Mayan, the Mayan religion, the world is being held up by five trees. There's a big bad monster called the World Crocodile, which makes sense as something to be afraid of given where they lived. The Mayan gods made men three different times. The first men were made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and... No, wait, that's the song. Sorry. The first men were made out of mud. But they were brittle, they couldn't move, so that patch was thrown away. The second men were made out of wood, but they had no soul. So the third time, they made men out of corn. Corn functions as the basis for humanity in the Mayan and Aztec religious tradition, which makes a kind of sense as corn was the most important uh, stable crop uh, for that civilization. Now, about their religion and Maybe skip ahead one minute if you have children here. Editor's note, if you're skipping ahead, your time code is 7 minutes and 18 seconds to pass over the more sensitive topics covered. The Mayans and the Aztecs had similar religions. Both were extremely bloody. The blood of living victims was thought to appease, to please, and to feed their deities. Human sacrifice was a very common occurrence in both Mayan and Aztec culture, but there is definitely a difference in scale. The Mayans were bloody, but the Aztecs were simply on a different level. It's like the difference between seeing a few dozen people in a crowd and the largest stadium in the world filled to a capacity. But I'll get there. There's a common theme in myths around the world about a god or goddess that steals something and gives it to men. Uh, the most famous European one is Prometheus stealing fire from the gods. But there's also a raven that stole the sun, numerous individuals around the world that stole knowledge. There's Chang in China who stole death. That's a weird story. More recently, there's Krom who stole steel from the gods and left on the battlefield for the men to find and for Conan to master. Although that one was just a movie in 1983, so it probably doesn't really count as a myth. Not yet, anyway. In Mayan mythology, it's Quetzalcoatl, 
and corn. He stole maize from the gods and gave it to men. So corn was the basis for all life and for all food. And Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent, was revered in Mayan and Aztec religions. Which leads us to our myth, the one that isn't true. This is a myth about a myth. It is a more modern story that is widely believed but has no basis in reality. Unequivocally, the Aztecs did not believe that Cortez was the second coming of Quetzalcoatl. There is no evidence for that. The idea that Montezuma simply stepped aside and let Cortez take over the throne was a story told by Cortez long after the fact to try to justify his actions. It directly contradicts with literally all of the other accounts, both Spanish and native. It is simply not true. But I'm getting ahead of the story. So after the collapse of the Mayans, the little warring city-states all dwindled down in population and left some gaps to be filled. Power vacuums. One gap, the most important gap, was filled by a people who called themselves the Mexica. And yes, if that does sound suspiciously like Mexico or Mexican, that's not just a coincidence. Well done you, you spotted it. So the Mexica people, or as we now call them, the Aztecs, moved into what is now Mexico City. And we don't actually know how that happened. Back then, the Aztecs had an oral history tradition that was coupled with sort of a uh, works of art and drawings that you would use them together uh, as a record of history. But if you only have one or the other, it's very, very loose and doesn't lend itself to a lot of detail. But lucky for us, they told the Spanish and the Spanish wrote it down. So here it is, the origin of the Mexica people as told by the Mexica people themselves, uh, but filtered through the Spanish. So maybe turn up the skepticism just a little bit, take it with a few extra grains of salt. They were a migrant or nomadic group that came from Northern Mexico. It is possible that they became migratory after the fall of the Mayans civilization because their city simply collapsed and could not support them. But for whatever reason, they're moving through northern Mexico, slowly making their way south. And they arrived at the then abandoned city of Teotihuacan, that's the city of the gods, in 1325. It was there that the gods told them to go south to Lake Texacoco. And there they would see an eagle perched on a cactus eating a snake. And if you think that's odd, well, then you've never actually seen the flag of Mexico because that's what's on the flag of Mexico. And that's where it comes from. So the gods told them to go south to find the eagle and found the city. And they did. And they did. They saw the eagle and the snake and the cactus. And on the shores of that lake, they did not found Mexico City. Nope. Mexico City was not built on the shores of that lake. It was founded actually on the lake, in the middle of the lake. The Mexica people built rafts and hid among the reeds and the swampy lands. Well, they, their numbers grew. 
Mexico City was founded on rafts and low sandbars in the center of this very wide and somewhat shallow lake. The city and its people were somewhat aquatic, which gave them an absolutely tremendous military advantage. The city-states are still warring. This is well before the Aztec Empire began to subjugate the surrounding peoples. So any group that had food and women was a target. But if you're living in the middle of a lake, people can't get to you. In the center of the lake, they were unconquerable. Well, unconquerable by, by the other Aztecs, at least. Uh, 250 years later, well, that's another story. No, it's not. It's this story. Okay, let's fast forward 250 years. Because of its unconquerable geography, the ideal location for trade and the power vacuum left by the Mayans, Tenochtitlan had developed into a seat of power, of absolute power. It is where the ruler ruled, the priests priested. It is where the god-king lived. And it was a beautiful city. It's almost an early version of Venice. Four quarters radiating from a center crossed, crossed by canals. People traveling in canoes around the city and through the city and to the shores. This is a direct quote and description uh, by the Spanish. This great city is situated on this salt lake. There are four avenues or entrances to the city over the water, all of which are formed by artificial causeways, two spear lengths in width. The city is as large as Seville or Cordoba. The streets are very wide and straight. Some of these and all of the inferior streets are half land and half water and are navigated by canoes as well as men. The water flows crossing from one street to another. There are also very wide bridges, wide enough for ten horses. There's a market square where every day 60,000 people gathered to trade. Everything could be found there. Jewels, gold, silver, food, lead, brass, copper, tin, precious stones, bones, shells, snails, and feathers. And people. There was a thriving and very large slave trade uh, in the Aztec Empire from the, well, the enslaving the Mayan people and uh, any of the other smaller tribes that were conquered in their unending lust for power and for blood. Cortez himself said, when we gazed upon all this splendor, we scarcely knew what to think, and we doubted whether all that we beheld was even real. A series of large towns stretched themselves along the banks of the lake, out of which still larger ones rose magnificently above the waters. Innumerable crowds of canoes were plying everywhere around us. At regular distances, we continuously passed over new bridges, and before us lay the great city of Mexico in all its splendor. Now, all of this came to an end shortly after the civilizations, separated by 5,000 miles of water, met on Friday, April 22nd, 1519. Sort of. It began on April 22nd. That is when a Spanish expedition commanded by Hernán Cortés landed on the Yucatán Peninsula 800 miles away. The land that the Spanish found themselves in was ruled by Montezuma II, the ninth king of the Aztecs, 
and an absolute monarch. A god-king, he ruled a vast territory. The warring city-states of the previous 2,000 years had been subjugated. And the subjugated people did not like Montezuma, the Aztecs, and their centralized power. They were required to deliver tribute, food, currency, metals, stones. But more importantly, they were required to deliver people. And not just as slaves, but as victims for the main temple at Tenochtitlan. All right, now once again, I'm, you may want to skip ahead by a minute or so, maybe two, if you have children listening. It's the editor again. If you want to skip this time, your time code is going to be 18 minutes and 18 seconds. These human sacrificial victims were killed by the Aztec priests on an incredibly large scale, a truly staggering amount. There has never been a more bloody religion in all of human history. They sacrificed 200,000 people a year. 200,000 people every year. On holy days, the main temple at Tenochtitlan killed 15 people every minute. That is one person every four seconds. 15 people a minute from dawn until nightfall. The blood ran down the steps of those temples, those pyramids, in rivers. And who were they? They were slaves, certainly. They were tribute. They were the subjugated peoples. They were soldiers that had been captured in the unending wars of expansion that the Aztecs waged against everyone on the other side of their border. They were regular people that had been sent as tribute to the Aztecs from their city-states. And it's important to note this because that is the primary reason why the Mayan city-states absolutely hated the Aztec kings. They were hated almost as much as they were fear. And that's what comes into play later with the arrival of Cortes. So, let's take, take a step back. Before Cortes, the Spanish first showed up in 1511. There was a small expedition. Uh, they were attacked and only two survived. One of the survivors was a man named Gonzalo Guerrero. And Gonzalo Guerrero was the father of the first Mexican. He was not the father of Mexico, but he was the father of the first Mexican, in the modern sense. Cortes was looking for the Spanish shipwrecks and possible survivors eight years later in 1519, and he found Gonzalo Guerrero, who at that point was a very well-respected man living in a village. When he approached Guerrero and told him to come and return with him, Guerrero responded, a brother, I am married. I have three children. Go with God, but look and see that I have my face carved and my eyebrow pierced. Look and see my little children. See how beautiful they are. I will not go with you. Great words, but he did end up going anyway. 
He was a European man, and he married a native Mayan woman. Their children were the first Mexicans in the modern sense. Uh, the marriage of the indigenous culture and the Spanish. But more importantly for Cortez and for this story and for the millions of people who lived in Mexico, Gonzalo Guerrero could speak Mayan. He'd lived there for eight years. He had a wife and children. He actually spoke Spanish and Mayan, but not Aztec. That link in the chain came from a unique source, a Mayan woman, a slave, named Malinali. Now, she is a tragic figure. Her mother died, her father remarried, and her new stepmom, and possibly her father as well, sold her as a slave to other Mayan merchants. So now she's a Mayan slave in Aztec, Mexico, and it's not a good situation to be in. She was, by many accounts, very beautiful, so she's traded and sold around central Mexico by these traveling merchants who end up uh, giving or selling her to a Mayan chief on the eastern coast of Mexico, right next to where Cortez had landed in the Yucatan Peninsula. So the Mayan chief gives her to Cortez. Cortez finds her beautiful and cultured. She becomes his lover, his confidant, his advisor on Mayan societies, the mother of one of his sons, his first son, and perhaps most importantly, his communicator, his translator. Cortez spoke Spanish to Guerrero. Guerrero spoke Mayan to Malinali. And Malinali spoke Aztec to the Aztecs. It worked. So Cortez begins traveling through central Mexico, taking kind of a winding path to get to Tenochtitlan. And on his way, he begins talking through Guerrero and through Malinali to the Mayan chiefs and leaders. They begin offering alliances to overthrow the Aztecs. He doesn't say yes, but he also doesn't say no. He's flattered. He's noncommittal. We'll see. Maybe so. Now, at this point, Cortez isn't even sure himself what is going to happen. But he's getting a picture of the Aztec world, both from his own travels and from Malinali. So he travels slowly. He's As he's doing so, he's accumulating gifts and slaves, soldiers, offers of alliance, all the way to Tenochtitlan and the god king Montezuma and the seat of Aztec power. And when he finally gets there, when he finally arrives, does war break out immediately? No. Was Cortez proclaimed a god? No. Did Montezuma cower in fear? Definitely not. It's a little anticlimactic at first. The Spanish arrive, Montezuma welcomes them, he gives them huge amounts of gifts. Unfortunately, some of those gifts were lots of gold, which he had gotten from all of the Mayan city-states, which and in such numbers that the Mayan city-states were quite poor in precious metals, they were all in Tenochtitlan. So when the Spanish saw the gold, uh, that, that was it. Their, their eyes just lit up. At that point, Cortez knew what was going to happen. But it didn't happen quickly. In fact, it was several months later. 
Now, this next part is incredibly complicated, so I'm not really going to cover it. It could make a movie or a miniseries with all the backstabbing and the intrigue. Uh, Cortez never trusted Montezuma. Montezuma wanted to have them killed. There were priests that were vying for power. They wanted to sacrifice them. Uh, there was another man another Spanish man from Cuba that was landing in Mexico, who was Cortez's rival, and Cortez leaves the city to go attack this Spanish rival and leaves a few of his men, but not a lot of them, in town, in, in Tenochtitlan. When he returns, that's pretty much when all hell broke loose. Now, there are differing accounts as to what actually happened. Um, and I'm not going to try to cover all of them. So basically, in a nutshell, there was a guy named Aguilar, and Aguilar killed a bunch of Aztecs, most likely at a religious ceremony where they were killing a lot of victims. But that was one of those 15 people a minute days. The Aztec people react violently. Uh, they demand uh, the immediate execution of all of the Spanish invaders, Montezuma becomes terrified. Now, at this point, we just don't know whether he was captured by the Aztecs or whether they demanded that he go out and tell his people to calm down and his people killed him or that the Spanish killed him. We just don't know. But for however it happened, the tinderbox that was Tenochtitlan as the home of Cortez and Montezuma just exploded. Cortez returned and found everything just in flames. He attempted to rally his men, but they were vastly, vastly outnumbered, so they lost. They were kicked out of the city. But oddly enough, the Aztecs did not pursue them. Had they done so, they very easily could have wiped them out. Because at that point, it was just the Spanish. It was a few hundred people. And they were in the center of an empire with millions. At least five million in the Aztec Empire Central, and many, many more if you counted the surrounding um, not-quite-Aztec, but still Mayan city-states, and even more if you counted their areas of influence. So there's a night which in Mexican history is called the Tragic Night, where Cortez cries alone under a tree, uh, a tree that is still there, by the way. The Spanish could have been destroyed, but they weren't. When the dawn came, Malinali convinced Cortez to send for his allies, and he did, and they came. The Mayan city-states that hated the Aztecs came in large numbers. They came 200,000 strong. Finally, they're going to overthrow this yoke, this oppressive, oppressive rulers, and they did. They put siege to Tenochtitlan. They, because it's a salt lake, they broke the aqueducts that were supplying water to the city. Virtually all of the people who for centuries had been forced to contribute their share of men and women for human sacrifice 
supported the Europeans, so no one was coming to the aid of Tenochtitlan. When the city finally fell, more than 40,000 bodies were floating on Lake Texacoco. The city's fall practically amounted to genocide, essentially. Within a, within a few years of Cortez's arrival, and without going through a phase of decline like other empires, the most powerful ruler that had ex- existed in Mexico ever was dead. His body was thrown into the lake, his great city lying in ruins. His people shattered, killed. It's a tragic ending, but when you consider who was doing the fighting and why they were doing it, it's uh, not quite as black and white. The human sacrifices stopped. Uh, They were not allowed under the uh, strict Catholic regime that the Spanish set up. Uh, And to be honest, it, it looks very much like the Catholic priest found a very fertile ground for a different type of religion that did not involve so much blood. The story does not end here. There, the next portion, the next piece where I will wrap this up, uh, was a native Mayan man who had been given a Christian name by the Spanish of Juan Diego. In 1531, this is about 10 years, a little less than 10 years after the fall of Tenochtitlan. Now, according to tradition and to legend, the Virgin Mary appeared to him and spoke to him. Juan Diego was a man that had seen too much war, too much blood. He had been there at the fall of Tenochtitlan, and it had affected him greatly. Uh, A poem that had been written by some of the survivors uh, that he was acquainted with, um, kind of put it into context. The tra- the untranslated version is beautiful, but I can't do that, so here you go. All of this happened to us. We saw it. We observed it. With this mournful and sad fate, we found ourselves in anguish. On the roads, like broken arrows, the people, the bodies are scattered. The houses are roofless. Their walls are blood-red. And it was one of the survivors, one of the witnesses to that, that then, according to legend, saw the Virgin Mary. And it is this sighting that one of the most important and impactful images of Mexico emerges, the Virgin of Guadalupe. So Mary asks Juan Diego to build a temple for her, according to the legend of the the monks and the priests who kind of supported this. What she said was, I want very much that you build my sacred little house here because I am truly your compassionate mother, yours and all of the people who live together in this land. And of all the other people of different ancestries, those who love me, those who cry to me, those who seek me, those who trust in me, because I will listen to their weeping, their sadness, to remedy, to cleanse and nurse all their different troubles, their miseries, their suffering. It is a message of unity, peace, and healing uh, that fell on fertile ground and willing ears. Her church is still 
revered. Really revered. The Basilica of Guadalupe is the second most visited Catholic site in the world. The only site that receives more visitors is the Vatican itself. It is not an exaggeration to say that the image of Guadalupe was the very first element of a union between the native people and the Spanish that eventually became the nation, the country of Mexico. The Virgin of Guadalupe is one of the most enduring symbols of not just Mexico and not just Mexicans, but Mexicana in general. If you are driving a car while you're listening to this podcast and you look around, there's a decent chance you're going to see the Virgin of Guadalupe, especially if you are in Texas or the American Southwest. But before she was a symbol on the rear window of numerous and innumerable work trucks, she was an image on a piece of cloth. In Mexico, only two things are untouchable, the president and the Virgin of Guadalupe. And originally she came from a native Mayan man who converted to Christianity and be given a Christian name, who spoke to a European priest about what he had just seen. And the message was of not hope, but of healing and peace and coming together after so disastrous and bloody the fall, well, the, the bloody rise and the bloody fall of the empire of the Aztecs. So that's the early history of Mexico. And we haven't even gotten to the part where it becomes Mexico yet. I'm going to be working on that. To be fair, I've done considerable amount of work and research already, so it probably won't take another month. But I am moving into a brand new house, so that will occupy some of my time as well. But the next piece is all about the colonial powers and how Mexico becomes kind of a plaything for the great powers of Europe, the incredible importance of silver and silver mining and processing uh, that arose, the cottage industries of textiles. Uh, it has to do with war, war between the United States, war between the French. There's an amazing story. There's Oh, it's so great about uh, Cinco de Mayo, which is or as we knew it in Texas, Cinco de Drinco. But the actual story of Cinco de Mayo is a really cool one. And that leads us directly into the Mexican Revolution. And one of the more interesting characters in history, and the reason I even got into this was because I wanted to do a piece on Pancho Villa, but I realized I couldn't because I didn't have the context of everything that came before, and that's why I started putting this together. So, that one, the next piece will be out within a few weeks. In the meantime, uh, check out the other ones. Um, I will be, as soon as I move into that new house, I'm going to start streaming on Twitch. Um, not combat games or anything like that. It's not Call of Duty. That's not what I'm good at. What I'm good at and what I actually enjoy is kind of the open world games that have a historical aspect to them. I would very much like to play through uh, the Witcher series 
and talk about the origins of the mythology. Same thing with God of War, uh, that series, talk about the origins of the mythology. Uh, and uh, the Hogwarts Legacy, where I can, surprise, surprise, talk about the origins of the mythology. I'm really looking forward to that. I don't know if anybody's actually going to watch, but I'm going to have a lot of fun doing it, and I'm building an absolutely massive supercomputing rig that is going to push everything into absolute top gear. So even if nobody watches, I'm still going to enjoy it. If you do want to watch, uh, that's going to be on uh, Twitch, and my name is, well, Storied History. If you did like this story, please do let me know. Send me an email or leave a comment in the ratings or something because I'm trying to get some feedback. It's kind of hard to do that on a podcast. I'm going to go find the next story, which is also about the history of Mexico. So I guess I'll be going to work on the next story. If you'd like to hear it, hit the subscribe button and I will get that to you. Enjoy the rest of your summer. Here's hoping that it cools off slightly. This episode of Storied History was written and recorded by Charles Chestnut and produced by Seamus O'Connor. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a rating. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.